All right, we are back, and I've got the perfect article to talk about here in relation to uh, our last guest. New Scientist Magazine article by Marcus Chown about how an idea from the early days of the Apollo missions is now making a comeback. Noted Marcus Chown, NASA is nervous about sending astronauts to Mars, and understandably so. Six months' exposure to the wind of high-energy particles streaming from the sun could indeed prove deadly. But a team of researchers at the Rutherford Appleton Laboratory near Oxford, UK, has hit upon a phenomenon that might just solve the problem. They've shown that a magnet no wider than your thumb can deflect a stream of charged particles like those in the solar wind. This gives new life to an old idea about shielding spacecraft and might just usher in a new era of space travel. They quoted Ruth Bamford of the RAL saying that space radiation has been called the only showstopper for the crowd for the crude exploration of space. Adding, our experiment demonstrates there may be a way the show can go on. And we talked about the Aurora Borealis uh, a little while back. There was a huge coronal mass injection off the surface of the sun early in this month, and uh, there was indeed quite a light show of the aurora. Didn't quite get down to the Canadian border, but went a lot further south than it normally does. The reason we have that phenomenon is that our magnetosphere, which is the magnetic field that wraps around the Earth, deflects the solar wind. So this stream of charged particles flowing off the surface of the sun isn't, isn't hitting us like bullets all day long. Unfortunately, if you leave our magnetosphere, like on a mission to Mars, we leave that protection behind. They note that the solar wind can give blasts of radiation a thousand times as powerful as that released by the atomic bombs at Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which is not something the space agency wants to inflict on its astronauts. Now, when they were first confronting this back in the days of Werner von Braun, they were thinking about trying to shield a spacecraft with magnets, but their calculations showed they needed a very large magnet, so large it would be impractical. But as is often the case, a little practical knowledge shows that we didn't figure things out as well as we thought we had. Scientists made some discoveries by uh, studying the data coming back from some roaming spacecraft around our solar system. They discovered that... uh, that, well, it turned out our solar system was littered with small but surprisingly powerful magnetic shields. There seem to be several on the moon, for example. The moon does not have a magnetic field like the Earth does, but apparently uh, impacts in the past have left some areas magnetized, and those areas are able to deflect the solar wind well enough to where they protect portions of the surface. And when the NASA Galileo spacecraft uh, made some... uh, Uh, flybys of some small asteroids, Ida and Gaspara, which are tiny rocks only about 30 and 20 kilometers across, they found that contrary to all expectations, both these bodies were found to support some weak magnetic fields. And around both of them, the Galileo spacecraft spotted some buffer zones that were free of charged particles. They were, it turns out, much further out from the asteroid surface than would be expected given the weakness of their fields. This earned these magnetic fields a second look, and it turns out that studies have now shown that uh, the forces they exert on the charged particles themselves generate larger magnetic fields. In fact, the separation of positive and negative charges generates intensive electric fields that are up to a million times stronger than the magnetic fields that generated them. The result? A shielding effect far more powerful than the magnetic field alone might be expected to provide. So this is very good news for spacecraft that might want to head off to Mars. 
Now, it turns out this is not going to stop you from things like a strain neutron or gamma rays or even x-rays and things like that. But, you know, it's good news just the same. Now, if only we could develop the political will to transfer the money that's currently going into the great military machine that's blowing people up in Iraq and Afghanistan and divert that into something that's a little more peaceful, like going to Mars. Speaking of radiation, interesting opinion piece in New Scientist by Wade Allison, taking the provocative position that radiation is, in fact, much less harmful than we'd feared in the past. Given the availability of carbon-free nuclear power, this makes a sea change in our view of radiation rather urgent. The article notes that since 1950, public dose limits have been tightened by a factor of 150. Currently, the internationally recommended limit is 1 millisievert per year above the natural background level of about 2 millisieverts per year. For comparison, a typical CT scan might give you a dose of 5 millisieverts and a simple dental or limb fracture x-ray 1 one-hundredth of that. The article goes on. Much has been learned over the past half century from clinical medicine, radiobiology, and accidents like Chernobyl. There's no doubt that a very high single dose is fatal. Noting a study of 237 firefighters at Chernobyl illustrated that within a few weeks of the accident, 28 had died, and 27 of those had received doses in excess of 4 sieverts. However, said the article, many people receive much higher doses than this, albeit under very different circumstances. When a cancer patient is treated with radiation in a radiotherapy clinic, the tumor dies after absorbing a dose of more than 40 sieverts. During the treatment, healthy tissue and organs near the tumor get an incidental dose of some 20 sieverts, which is 20,000 times the recommended annual limit, and at least five times the dose that proved fatal at Chernobyl. But the critical difference they note is that the therapeutic dose is spread over four to six weeks, which gives cells time to repair the damage. Article cites interesting data about uh, the, the nuclear attacks on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945. About 66% of the original inhabitants of the two cities survived to 1950. And since that time, their individual health records have been extensively studied. By 2000, 7.9% of them had died of cancer. That compares with 7.5% expected from rates found in similar Japanese cities over the same period. Wrote Wade Allison, this shows that the extra risk caused by radiation is very small compared with the background cancer risk. He goes on to say that it's clear that radiation safety limits are far too conservative. Evidently, our bodies have learned through evolution to repair or eliminate damaged cells. Interesting piece. You may want to read it online uh, yourself in its entirety. Speaking of health items, how about this story? Researchers at the Oshner Health System in Louisiana analyzed the health and activities of 120,000 people over 14 years. After adjusting for factors such as body mass index and smoking, they found that sitting six hours a day is a major health risk. Sedentary women faced a 37% higher risk of dying during those 14 years compared to women who sat for less than three hours a day. The increased mortality risk for men was 17%. Exercising did lower the risk of early death, but far from eliminated it. The researchers suspect that when muscles are inactive for long periods of time, the body releases hormones affecting cholesterol and triglycerides, which can cause heart disease. Said oncologist and study author Jay Brooks, it's one more reason to get up and walk. If you're in a job that does require sitting, that's fine. But any time you can expend energy is good. That's the key. Well, that's not much help if you've got a desk job. 
tell you, I've, I've never really had a true desk job, and, and I do find that sitting at a desk is a most, a most annoying position to find yourself in for long periods of time. I can't recommend it. All right, we've got about four minutes left, and I want to do a, a medical story. We will again go to our old pals at New Scientist Magazine article from the July 31st edition by Robert Matthews about the subject of fever. Fever is something we're all familiar with. You know, you're starting to come down with a bug, you feel groggy, you're tired. Check a thermometer, confirms what you thought. Your temperature is elevated. And what, of course, is our response to this in the modern era? We gulp down antipyretic drugs like aspirin, acetaminophen, Motrin, Aleve, etc. Noted Robert Matthews in the article, it has long been acknowledged that such drugs could, in theory, be counterproductive. They do, after all, interfere with the body's natural response to infection. But these qualms have been set aside for a variety of reasons. The need to relieve discomfort fears about brain damage, time-honored practice, I like that one, and, some would say, the urge to be doing something rather than nothing. The article notes, the upshot of this is that antipyretics are routinely used for any feverish illness from the sickest of patients in intensive care to people using over-the-counter medicines at home. The standard advice for people with the flu, dose up with acetaminophen, Now, it is true that uh, parents of young children who are especially prone to fevers are well aware of the perils of inaction. You may sometimes get febrile convulsions in young children. But, says the article, there's now growing concern that these time-honored approaches are at best misguided and at worst potentially life-threatening. New findings are starting to support a much older view of fever, that it is a key part of the body's disease-fighting strategy. At the same time, the article, the article notes, the idea that antipyretics can prevent fits in children is looking increasingly shaky. And I must say, I've grappled with this ever since my earliest days in medical school. It seems clear that the body did, uh, did mount this reaction for a reason. And yet, what do we do in medicine? Try and reverse it. Article notes, the idea that fever can be beneficial date, dates back to the Greek physician Hippocrates 2,400 years ago. Then in the 1860s, the French physician Claude Bernard developed this theory of homeostasis, how the body's trying to return to a a certain given state. And of course, by that time, (laughs) the thermometer was invented. We were then able to accurately gauge just how hot the person was. Not surprisingly, doctors seized on these new antipyretics like uh, acetaminophen and aspirin, which rapidly lowered rising temperatures. Now, of course, physiologists have long suspected that the fever is an evolutionarily ancient disease-fighting system. It's very old, existing not only in mammals and birds, but also in fishes, amphibians, and reptiles. A sick lizard will climb out on a hot rock to try and get better. Perhaps it's just as well that no lizard physicians are giving him Tylenol. Now, the people have been studying... Uh, how fever works beneficially, and it seems that many disease-fighting mechanisms work better in hot conditions. Fever apparently enhances the ability of T lymphocytes to home in on the site of infection. It's also long been clear that fevers are bad news for many microbes. Incidentally, this is one reason why we get colds in the wintertime. The viruses that cause them 
hang out in the coldest part of your body during the coldest times of the year. Anyway, there are clearly reasons why you should use antipyretics. There's good evidence to suggest that a raised temperature is harmful to the body after a head injury or stroke. And of course, if a person is extremely uncomfortable due to the fever, it makes sense to knock it down. But a rethink in this area has long been overdue. Our thanks to the always entertaining Mary Roach. We highly recommend Packing for Mars, the curious science of life in the void. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm your host, Douglas Everett. We'll see you next week at the same time. When you put your arms around me I get a fever that's so hard to bear You give me fever When you kiss me, fever When you hold me tight Fever In the morning A fever all through the night Sun lights up the daytime Moon lights up the night I light up when you call my name And you know I'm gonna treat you right You give me fever When you kiss me Fever when you hold me tight Fever In the morning A fever all through the night Everybody's got the fever That is something you all know Fever isn't such a new thing Fever started long ago Romeo loved Juliet Juliet, she felt the same When he put his arm